This is an excerpt from the Singapore story, Memoir of Lee Kuan Yew. Preface I had not intended to write my memoirs and did not keep a diary. To do so would have inhibited my work. Five years after I stepped down as Prime Minister, my old friend and colleague, Lim Kim San, chairman of Singapore Press Holdings, convinced me that the young would read my memoirs since they were interested in a book of my old speeches, speeches that SPH had published, published in Chinese. I was also troubled. I was also troubled by the apparent overconfidence of a generation that has only known stability, growth, and prosperity. I thought our people should understand how vulnerable Singapore was and is, the dangers that beset us, and how we nearly didn't make it. Most of all, I hope that they will know that, that they will know that honest and effective government, public order, and personal security, economic and social progress did not come about as the natural course of events. This is not an official history. It is the story of Singapore I grew up in, the placid, the placid years of British colonial rule, the shock of war, the cruel years of Japanese occupation, communist insurrection, and terrorism against the returning British communal riots and intimidation during, intimidation during Malaysia and the perils of independence, of independence. This book deals with the early years which ended with our sudden independence in 1965. My next book will describe the long hard climb over the 25 years from poverty to prosperity. Many, not born or too young, when I took office in 1959, do not know how a small country with no natural resources was cut off from its natural hinterland and had to survive in a tough world, tough world of nationalistic new states in Southeast Asia. They take it as quite normal that in less than 40 years, the World Bank has reclassified Singapore from a less developed to a developed country. To write this book, I had to revive memories of events long forgotten, reading through minutes of meetings, letters written and received, and oral history transcripts of college. It was psychological stock-taking, and I was surprised how disturbing it was occasionally, although these events were passed and over with. I had one powerful critic and helper, my wife Chu. She went over every word that I wrote many times. We had endless arguments. She is a conveyancing lawyer by profession. I was not drafting a will or a conveyance to be scrutinized by a judge. Nevertheless, 
She demanded precise, clear, and unambiguous language. Chu was a tower of strength, giving a constant emotional and intellectual intellectual support. 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 I have not written, except incidentally, about what was an important part of my life, our three children. They have been a source of joy and satisfaction as Chu, and I watched them grow up like their peers, built successful careers in the Singapore my policies had transformed. For my cabinet colleagues and me, our families were at the heart of our team efforts to build a nation from scratch. We went, we wanted Singapore that our children and those of our fellow citizens would be proud of. A Singapore that would offer all citizens equal and ample opportunities for a fulfilling future. It was this drive in an immigrant nation society that spurred us on to fight and win against all odds. Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore, July 1998. Chapter 1. Suddenly Independence It was like any other Monday morning in Singapore until the music stopped. At 10 a.m., the pop tunes on the radio were cut off abruptly. Stunned listeners heard the announcer solemnly read out our proclamation, 90 words that changed the life of the people of Singapore and Malaysia. Whereas it is the inalienable right of a okay here is the quote from the proclamation whereas it is the inalienable right of a people to be free and independent i lee kuan yu prime minister of singapore do hereby proclaim and declare on behalf of the people and the government of singapore that as from today the ninth day of August in the year 1965, Singapore shall be forever a sovereign, democratic, and independent nation, founded upon the principles of liberty and justice, and ever seeking the welfare and happiness of her people in a more just and equal society. 215 miles to the north, in peninsular Malaysia, Tunku Abdul Rahman was making his own proclamation, declaring that Singapore shall cease to be a state of Malaysia and shall forever be an independent and sovereign state and nation separate from and independent of, from and independent of Malaysia and that the government of Malaysia recognized the government of Singapore as an independent and sovereign government of Singapore and will always work in friendship and cooperation with it. Separation. What I had so, what I had fought so hard to achieve was now being dissolved. Why? And why so suddenly? It was only two years since the island of Singapore 
had become part of the new Federation of Malaysia, which also included the North Borneo territories of Sarawak and Sabah. At 10 a.m. the same day, in the Malaysian capital, Kuala Lumpur, the Tunku explained to Parliament, in the end, we find that there are only two causes, there are only two causes open to us to take repressive measures against the Singapore government or their leaders for the behavior of some of their leaders. And the course of action we are taking now to suffer with the state government of Singapore that has ceased to give a measure of loyalty to the central government. The house listened in utter silence. The Tunku was speaking at the first reading of a resolution moved by Tun Abdul Razak, the deputy prime minister, to pass the Constitution of Malaysia, Singapore Amendment Bill, 1965, immediately. By 1.30 p.m., the debate on the second and third readings has, had ended, had ended. And the bill was sent to the Senate. The Senate, the Senate started its first reading at 2.30 and completed the third reading by 4.30. The head of state, the young Dipertuan Agong, gave his royal assent that same day, concluding that constitutional formalities, concluding the constitutional formalities, Singapore was cast out. Under Malay Muslim custom, a, hus- a husband, but not the wife, can declare talak, or I divorce thee, and the woman is divorced. They can reconcile, and he can remarry her, but not after he, had, he has said talak three times. The three readings in the two chambers of parliament were the three talaks, which Malaysia divorced Singapore, the partners predominantly Malay in Malaya, predominantly Chinese in Singapore, had not been compatible. Their union had been marred by increasing conjugal strife over whether the new federation should be a truly multiracial society or one dominated by Malays. Singapore went for the substance of the divorce, not its legal formalities. If there was to be separation, I wanted to ensure that the terms were practical, workable, and final. To make certain there could be no doubt as to their finality, the Singapore government published the two proclamations in a special government gazette that morning. I had asked for, and the Tunku had given, his proclamation with his personal signature, so that there could be no reversal. Even if other Malaysian leaders or members of parliament disagreed with it, P.S. Raman, director of radio and television Singapore, had received these documents from the secret secretary of the cabinet office. He decided to have them read in full, in Malay, Mandarin, and English. 
on the three different language channels and repeated every half hour. Within minutes, the news agents, the news agencies, had cabled the news to the world. To the world, I had started the day, Monday, 9th August, with a series of meetings with key civil servants, especially those under federal jurisdictions to inform them that Singapore ministers would now assume control, assume control just before 10 o'clock when the announcement was to be made. I met those members of the diplomatic corps in Singapore who could be gathered at short notice. Short notice. I told them of the separation and Singapore's independence and requested recognition from their governments. As the diplomats left, I drew aside the Indian Deputy, the Indian Deputy High Commissioner, and the UAR, UAR Egyptian Consul General, and gave them letters, gave them letters for Prime Minister Sastri and President Nasser. India and Egypt were then with Indonesia the leading countries in the Afro-Asian movement. In my letters, I sought their recognition and support, and support, and support. From India, I asked for advisors to train an army, and from Egypt, an advisor to build a coastal defense force. Before noon, I arrived at the studios of Radio and Television Singapore for a press conference. It had an unintended and unexpected result. After a few opening questions and answers, a journalist asked, could you outline for us the train of events that led to this morning's proclamation? I recounted my meetings with the Tungku in Kuala Lumpur during the previous two days but the, but the Tunku put it very simply that there was no way and that there would be a great deal of trouble if we insisted on going on and I would like to add you see this is a moment of every time we look back on this moment when we signed this agreement with suffered Singapore from Malaysia it will be a moment of anguish because all my life I have believed in merger and in merger and the unity of these two territories. It's a people connect it's a people connected by geography, economics and ties of kinship. Would you mind if we stop for a while? At the moment my emotions overwhelmed me. It was only after another 20 minutes that I was able to regain my composure and resume the press conference. conference. It was not a live telecast, as television transmissions then started only at 6 p.m. I asked P.S. Rahman to cut the footage of my breakdown, of my breakdown. He strongly advised against it. The press, he said, was bound to report it, and if he edited it out, 
and he edited it out, their, their descriptions of the scene would make it appear worse. A headphone Raman, a Tamil Brahmin born in Madras, and a loyal Singaporean, a sword and sound advisor. I took his advice. And so, many people in Singapore and abroad saw me lose control of my emotions. That evening, radio and television Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur telecast my press conference. Including this episode, among Chinese, it is unbecoming to exhibit such a lack of manliness. But I could not help myself. It was some consolation that my that many viewers in Japan, Australia, and New Zealand sympathized with me and with Singapore. They were in, they were interested they were interested in Malaysia because their troops were defending it against our confrontation. The euphemism President Sukarno of Indonesia used to describe his small-scale undeclared war against the new and expanded neo-colonialist federation. I was emotionally overstretched, overstretched, having gone through three days and nights of a ranging experience with little sleep since Friday night in Kuala Lumpur. I was close to, phys- to physical exhaustion. I was weighed down by a heavy sense of guilt. I felt I had let down several million people in Malaysia, immigrant Chinese and Indians, Eurasians, and even some Malays. I had aroused their hopes, and they had joined people in Singapore in resisting Malay hegemony, the root cause of our dispute. Of our dispute. I was ashamed that I had left our allies and supporters to fend for themselves, including party leaders from other states of Malaysia, Sabah, Sarawak, Penang, Perak, Selangor, and Negeri Sembilan. Together, we had formed the Malaysian Solidarity Convention, which had been which had been meeting and coordinating our activities to mobilize the people to stand up for a for non-communal society. We had set out to create to create a broad coalition that could press the alliance government in Kuala Lumpur for Malaysian Malaysia, not a Mal- not a Malay Malaysia. No easy matter, since the the ruling the the ruling alliance itself was dominated by the Tungkus United Malays National Organization. Or UMNO. I was also filled with remorse and guilt for having had to deceive the Prime Ministers of Britain, Australia, and New Zealand in the last three weeks while they had been giving me and Singapore their quiet and power- powerful support for a peaceful solution to Malaysia's communal problems. I had been secretly discussing desperation. All this stuff preyed on me during the three during the three weeks of our negotiations with Razak, the Tungkus 
deputy. As long as the battle of wills was on, I keep my cool. But once the deed was done, my feelings got the better of me, got the better of me. While I was this overwhelmed, the merchants in Singapore's Chinatown were jubilant. They set off firecrackers to celebrate their liberation from communal rule by the Malays from Kuala Lumpur, carpeting the streets with red pepper red paper debris, the Chinese language newspaper Xinchu Jitpo reporting that people had fired the cracks to mark this great, great, great day, said with typical Chinese obliqueness. It could be that they were anticipating Jongwonjie, the festival of the hungry ghost. It added an enigmatic phrase. phrase. In each individual's heart is his own prayer. The, nyan, the Nanyang Siang Pao wrote, the heart knows without having to announce it. The president of the Singapore Chinese Chamber of Commerce, Sun Pai Yam, publicly, publicly, publicly will welcome the news of Singapore's separation from Malaysia. His committee would meet the next day to discuss sponsoring a joint celebration of the island in the, of the island's independence by all registered trade associations unions unions guilds and other civic organizations he said businessmen in general feel very much relieved at the latest political developments investors did not Feel my anxiety either. Separation set off a tremendous, a tremendous burst of activity in the summer, in the share market, in the share market. On that first day, the trading rooms of the steel joint Singapore Malaysia Stock Exchange in Singapore and Kuala Lumpur recorded twice the volume of transactions of the most active days of the previous previous week. By the next day, investors had decided independence was good for the economy. And there was an even larger turnover, turn, even larger turnover. The value of 25 out of 27 industrial stocks rose. In the city center, by contrast, the streets were, were deserted by the afternoon of Nint. August. The night before, I had informed John Kane, the Singapore Police Commissioner, of the impending announcement and had handed him a letter from Dato Dr. Ismail bin Dato Abdul Rahman, the Federal Minister for Home Affairs, telling him to take his instructions from the Singapore government in future. Lacaine had deployed his Police reserve units, paramilitary squads, especially trained to deal with violent rioters, just in case pro anomaly activists in Singapore went on a rampage to protest against separation. People were quick to sense the danger, having experienced two bloody Malay Chinese riots the previous year. 
the presence of the presence of the riot squads and their special fans equipped with water hoses and fit with wire netting over glass windows and wine screens to protect them from missiles encouraged caution many decided to leave their off their office and go home early and go home and go home early the day was hot and humid typical august weather by the time the earth the earth cooled that evening i was weary but i was determined but i was jitter but i was determined to keep to my routine of daily ex- exercise exercise to remove to remove my to remove my tensions i spent more than an hour hitting 150 golf balls from the practice tee in front of sri tamase my official residence in the grounds of the istana formerly former house it made me feel better it made me feel better and gave me a lot of appetite for dinner before my meeting with viscount head and british high commissioner to kuala lumpur my secretary had taken a telephone call from anthony's head's office that morning at 9:30 and since it was only 30 minutes before the proclamation was to be made he had said that i was not immediately available had asked if he could see me that afternoon i sent back a message offering 8 pm he set it for 10 to 8 at 7:30 pm he arrived at street masek for security reasons i was not staying at my home in oxley road to be greeted by my doctor waiting all of 10 years old and dressed in t-shirt and shorts who was playing under the porch do you want to see my father my father she asked lord head it was suitably informal welcome for with independence my relation with my relations with him had suddenly become equivocal I reached the porch in time to greet him as he got out of the car and asked him, "Who are you talking on behalf of?" He replied, "Well, of course you know. I am accredited accredited to a foreign government." Exactly. And have you got specific authority to speak to me about Singapore's relationship with Britain? No. Then in then this is a tete tete it is just a chit chat if you like to put it that way it was that way when describing this meeting to a group of British and Australian cover foreign correspondents later that month i tried to give the impression of an encounter between two adversaries in truth i had a heavy heart trouble throughout heads bearing impression his demeanor his demeanor was worthy of a sandhurst training officer in the life guards he had been defense minister at the time of the 
Anglo-French invasion of Suez in 1956 and had resigned along with Anthony Eden, accepting responsibility for the debacle. For the debacle, he was British upper class, good at the stiff upper lip. He had tried his best to prevent this break. He had done his utmost to get the Tunku and the federal government to adopt policies, 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 policies to the policies, policies to the policies that could build up unity within Malaysia. Both he and British High Commissioner, High Commissioner, in constant touch with the Tunku and his ministers and his prime minister in London, Harold Wilson, Harold Wilson, had given me unstinting support for a constitutional solution to dispute to the dispute between Kuala Lumpur and Singapore. They had insisted successfully that force should not be used. Had they not done this, the outcome would have been different. Separation, separation was certainly not the solution he had worked so hard for. But despite the presence of some 63,000 British servicemen, servicemen, two aircraft carriers, 80 warships, and 20 squadrons of aircraft in Southeast Asia to defend the Federation, he could not prevail against the force of Malay communalism. The Malay leaders, including the Tunku, feared that if ever they share real political power with the 